be really informed, you need to know what's behind the national news stories and what's going on in your neighborhood. Consider This, a new podcast from NPR and WNYC, helps you make sense of the day. Subscribe to Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, Mary Harris. Hey, Kenny Malone. I have here a picture that I'm going to show you. Okay. Uh, Then you're going to describe it to our audience because they can't see it. (laughs) Keep in mind, this is from 1893. Uh, It's from the Library of Congress. So it's official. It's as official as they come. Are you ready? Yes. Here you go. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so I am looking at a very muscular gentleman. He Mm -hmm. is nude (laughs) except for a very well-placed leaf. He's got a, an excellent mustache. The mustache is fantastic. He looks like one of those statues you see at a museum, like a Greek <laughs> or Roman god. He's sort of in that pose, hands behind his head. It looks like his thighs are made of ham hocks or something. Yeah, you could bounce quarters off of this. Isn't this great? Absolutely. So remember, this is from 1893, and this is a guy named Bernard McFadden. This guy actually gets name-checked in the musical Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. The life I lead would gladden the heart of Bernard McFadden. Okay, who is this guy? Oh yeah, Bernard McFadden. This guy's life sounds like it is made up. So right around 1900, he launches a magazine called Physical Culture, and it helps turn him into a famous publisher and a fitness guru. Along the way, he helps discover Charles Atlas. He holds a perfect woman contest and marries the winner. There's a rumor that he changed his name from Bernard to Bernard to sound more like a lion's roar. Yeah, that's not a name. Bernard. Bernard. Oh, it's a name now. (laughs) I mean, and yet, had you ever heard of this guy? Never. No. No. Me neither. Yeah. And today, we have two stories. The first is about Bernard McFadden. And the other is about the guy who wrote the movies Airplane and Naked Gun, And we're going to explain the strange way those two men's stories fit together. All right. Well, this is Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. And Kenny, you're going to take it from here. I got it. I don't smoke, never touch a drink, but I'm sturdy as an oak, and I'm always in the pink. I'm going to tell you the story of how Bernard McFadden came to believe he found the cure to everything. But without any context, this is going to sound totally insane. So for some background, there's a show on Cinemax right now called The Nick. It's the early 1900s, surgeons inventing surgery, and the tagline is modern medicine had to start somewhere. Indeed, we must be aggressive if our patients are to improve. There's this scene where the wife of one of the main characters gets treatment for depression. Eleanor, you have a visitor. And when her husband visits her for the first time... What in the hell happened? It's all part of the treatment. All of her teeth have been pulled out. My research has shown conclusively that all mental disorders stem from disease and infection polluting the brain. So the teeth and gums are havens for bacteria and sepsis. I believe in this treatment so strongly that I've removed my own children's teeth as a preventative measure. I mean, that sounds crazy, right? But after that episode aired, there were a number of stories that were like, no, seriously, that is based on a true story. And I think it's easy to forget how young, quote-unquote, modern medicine is, and just how primitive it all looks to us now. For syphilis, asthma, and lice, try mercury, chloroform, and kerosene. 
Surgery was bloody and deadly. The go-to anesthesia was cocaine. The professionals were making this stuff up as they went. It's not so crazy, then, for a guy like Bernard McFadden, without any training at all, to come along and say, hey, you know what? I bet I can find a way to heal people without poisoning them or cutting them open with a saw. Bernard McFadden was an orphan, and he goes to this awful orphan school, as he called it. This is Mark Adams, who wrote a book about Bernard McFadden. They don't have enough to eat. There are days when there is no food to eat there. So he's got in the back of his mind the idea that he can get by on no food. Bernard McFadden was born in 1868. His father drank himself blind and eventually to death. His mother died of tuberculosis, and by 12, he was an orphan. At one point, he was vaccinated against smallpox and wound up bedridden for six months with blood poisoning. It's probably not a coincidence that ultimately, McFadden's health philosophy would be staunchly anti-vaccine and anti-medicine. In the early 1880s, as a teenager, Bernard McFadden moved to St. Louis and got really into weightlifting. By 18, he was a physical specimen. He went around town wrestling people, building a name for himself, and it's around this time that he makes his big discovery. It starts when Bernard McFadden gets sick. I think he was in his early 20s and comes down with pneumonia. And he thinks back to a time when he was working on a farm. He thinks, you know what? When animals get sick, they sort of have a treatment of their own. Which was to stop eating when they felt sick. You know, your dog would go out in the backyard, start munching on a little grass, and then take it easy for the rest of the day. And so Bernard McFadden, sick with pneumonia, stops eating. Rather than feeling weak, he feels himself getting better within 24 hours. And then after that, he feels himself getting energized. And then after that, he finds out that he can give up food for seven days and still keep lifting weights and feel himself getting stronger as the week goes on. And Bernard McFadden had the foundation for his cure to everything. McFadden believed that almost any disease was due to impurity of the blood. If, however, one fasted, if one could eliminate things like meat, caffeine, alcohol, one could get rid of all the impurities in one's blood. He has decided that fasting is essentially the theory of everything. It's the cure that America has been looking for. Okay, so stop eating to cure everything? Oh, yeah. Let me bring in the Bernard McFadden voice actor here. Disease, no matter what may be its nature, can be absolutely dried up by this process. So a few years after this revelation, McFadden launches his first magazine, Physical Culture, and uses it to preach the hell out of this fasting cure and also to rail against actual doctors. It is time. Medical fakers with their false, murderous science were shown up in the light of reason. The writer cannot recall at this moment any disease which he does not firmly and conscientiously believe can be cured by judicious fasting. Yeah, it's pretty, like, unequivocal. Mm -hmm. And check this out. Here is McFadden's prescription for what to me seems like the number one thing you would not want to treat with fasting. Emaciation, treatment, in this disease because of the peculiar wasted condition of the body, fasting must be employed with great care. Though an abstinence from food for two to five days, even if the patient is greatly emaciated, will be of decided benefit in practically all cases. 
I feel like you can kind of hear his <laughs> rational brain like, no, fasting, it just it doesn't make sense here. And then he just kind of can't help himself. Like, okay, but you should probably still fast if you can. You can't help himself. McFadden developed an entire alternative health philosophy sort of around this idea. Uh, he did not like surgery or medicine or vaccines. He said, you can cure yourself. You can prevent disease yourself. And some of his ideas were way ahead of their time. Uh, all the exercise he was into, for example, he was totally against cigarettes and alcohol and processed foods. He was really into cleanses, all kinds of cleanses. This is stuff that we talk about all the time now. Totally. But he also thought you could stop male pattern baldness by tugging your hair uh, and clean your bowels by eating sand. But, but at any rate, the heart of this philosophy, this fasting cure, he's preaching this publicly, but he is practicing it too. I met his son down in Virginia who looked just like his father except was six inches taller and maybe 50 pounds heavier with more muscle. And he told me, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't want to tell my father that we were sick because we knew the first thing he was going to do was cut off our food. That's brutal. It sounds brutal now. I mean, there's the old idea of, you know, starve a fever, feed a cold. But for McFadden, it was starve a fever, starve a cold, starve a sore throat, starve cancer, starve kleptomania. In the grand scheme of things, McFadden's fast-to-fix-everything idea had a very brief moment of success. It starts to pick up when McFadden documents how he cured people of rheumatoid arthritis, tuberculosis, asthma, and emaciation. This, of course, was by his own account. But you can see in his magazine there these before pictures of shirtless, skinny-looking dudes, and then after pictures of the same shirtless, slightly less sickly-looking dudes. By 1901, McFadden decides to make his methods available to the public. Um, and he goes out and he starts opening these health homes. He opens one in Battle Creek, Michigan. He opens one in Chicago. He opens one on Long Island. And he starts inviting people, you know, almost like poking his finger at the medical establishment saying, you know, look, hey, you with the tuberculosis, the doctor can't help you, but I can. And what did like these health homes look like? What even point of context can we have for this? You know, they're, they're not unlike a modern spa. There's one up in northern New York, giant red brick building. It was originally known as the Castle on the Hillside. Completely abandoned now, you know, it's got ceiling is falling through, front desk is kicked over. But you can see like the, those old machines with the, the band around your waist that show up in Three Stooges movies where they shake you. No and way. like hot boxes that are like putting yourself in a clothes dryer with your head poking out of the top. I met a guy who had been a dance instructor there in the 1940s. And he said, you know, McFadden, he really wanted everyone to be clean inside and out. So when you showed up, your first appointment was with the rear admiral. <laughs> and that meant you were getting cleaned out from the bottom first. The problem, Mark says, was that as Bernard McFadden built his empire around alternative medicine, Western medicine was getting its act together and looking more and more promising. In 1921, a tuberculosis vaccine has its first human trial. By the early 1930s, the first pacemakers are in the works. And then in the early 1940s, penicillin saves its first patient, and the era of antibiotics truly begins. The greatest discovery probably of the 20th century uh, medically, and, you know, he's suddenly stuck on the wrong side of history. He just never gave it up. He, he you know, found his horse that he was going to ride, and that's, you know, that's him. 
I went looking for tape of Bernard McFadden talking about his alternative health stuff. I just couldn't find anything. Closest I could find was this newsreel about McFadden entering some airplane race. 70-year-old Bernard McFadden, publisher and physical culture advocate, who learned flying at 65... You can hear Bernard McFadden was still finding ways to be in the public eye as his health philosophy faded from relevance. And at some point, Mark Adams says, McFadden was just famous for being famous. Race, a man of my age, but one reason for entering it is to make a demonstration that life really begins at 70. Some people say it begins at 40 or 50, but I am inclined to believe it begins at 70. And it's about 15 years after that footage of McFadden was taken, he gets sick. You know, he's in a hotel room. It's 1955. He's in Jersey City. And he gets jaundice. And he decides that I'm going to go with the treatment that I've gone with all my life, which is fasting. And unfortunately, fasting is a very bad treatment for jaundice. The manager of the hotel finds McFadden unconscious and dehydrated. Whatever the initial cause of the jaundice was, McFadden was so sick that he died two days later at a hospital, 87 years old. And I'm sad to say, at that time, almost completely forgotten. You know, Mary, Mark Adams told me that when he heard about Bernard McFadden, he wanted to write a book about him because Bernard McFadden felt like he was a missile shot from 1900 that, that's just landing right now. Yeah, because all that stuff he's into, the cleanses and the vegetables and all that, it's back. It's back. And I think, though, that, that his idea to cure everything with a fast, I think the metaphor there is a little different. I think it's more like a message in a bottle that Bernard McFadden packed on his little deserted island of physical culture and sent out. It got lost at sea, and eh, who knows where it might wash up next. Oh, that's kind of intriguing. Okay, more on that after the break. By the way, Mark Adams' book about Bernard McFadden is called Mr. America, how muscular millionaire Bernard McFadden transformed the nation through sex, salad, and the ultimate starvation diet. Bernard. Bernard. podcast listeners, we're hoping to hear more about what you want to hear and how you listen to shows from WNYC Studios. Visit us at WNYC.org slash participate and take our brief survey. That's WNYC.org slash participate. You can also find a link on the webpage for this episode. We love hearing from you. Thanks. The September 11th terrorist attacks changed the world. There's a sense that they came out of nowhere. They didn't. I'm Jim O'Grady, and in my new podcast, I'm going to revisit the evidence and question the people at the center of the story. I don't want to use the word panic. Let's penetrate his cell. And I promised him revenge. Blind Spot, The Road to 9-11, a new podcast series from History and WNYC Studios. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Only Human. I'm Mary Harris. And we just heard about the rise and fall of a guy named Bernard McFadden, who took on the medical establishment with his idea to cure pretty much every disease by not eating, fasting. Kenny Malone is back now with another story of an outsider taking on the medical establishment 
Kenny? This story, I will foreshadow, also has a Bernard McFadden shoe that drops, but it will drop way down the line. First, we're going to start at the movies. Have you ever seen the movie Airplane, Mary? Oh, yeah. You know the Shirley joke? Yeah. I haven't even seen the movie, and I know that joke. (laughs) Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. (laughs) I mean, that's the ultimate dad joke, right? Yeah. At any rate, a a dad did help write it. Jim Abrams. I have this God-given gift to write uh, fart jokes for 13-year-old boys. And so... (laughs) Jim Abrams is a screenwriter, almost exclusively comedies like The Naked Gun and Hot Shots and Airplane. From that movie, the joke that resonates with me more than any of them is when the doctor, Leslie Nielsen, is talking to the pilot. doctor says... Captain, how soon can you land? How soon can we land? The pilot says... I can't tell. I can't tell. And Leslie Nielsen says... You can tell me I'm a doctor. (laughs) Why is that the joke that resonates with him? Well, Jim has a complicated history with doctors and actually that's the story i'm going to tell you next and he says this is the one thing he's never actually been able to write a joke about this all started when jim's son charlie was born in 1992 well i think charlie was a pretty typical baby he was our third baby so you know we were kind of used to the drill it just seemed like a happy, healthy kid. One day, Jim was in the yard with Charlie. He was on the swing, and I was in front of him and pushing him, and it was right around his first birthday, and he kind of flipped one of his arms up into the air and tilted his head. Hmm. And I really, it it wasn't that concerning to me. It just wasn't very concerning. But he checks with his wife, and it turns out she's actually seen these twitches too. So they set up an appointment with the pediatrician, And Charlie has one of these same twitches in front of the doctor. And it wasn't his words that I remember so much as I remember him blanching. I remember him seeing it and kind of getting a little white and saying, you got to go see a neurologist. Charlie was eventually diagnosed with something called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome, a pretty bad kind of epilepsy that can cause permanent brain damage and can really be hard to treat. And Charlie's condition got worse and worse and worse. Sometimes like eye rolls or um, the the scariest for us of all were what was called drop seizures. It's as though somebody just pulls the plug from the light socket, you just drop. And the only way, what we used to do with Charlie, if he was up and walking around, we had this harness. So when he would drop, he wouldn't hit his head on a table or the floor or something like that. But the bottom line is the seizures, he wound up getting up to about uh, somewhere between a dozen and a hundred seizures a day. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was a really sick kid. God, that is just, like, heartbreaking. So how old is Charlie at this time? So Charlie's still, he's about one still. And you, you heard Jim mention that they had a harness so that Charlie wouldn't fall down when he was walking. Well, he actually regressed and, and stopped walking. Oh. Um, and this is around the time that Charlie really should have said his first words. Those never came. They were able to get Charlie in to see a lot of doctors and tried him on dozens of combinations of medication. And often the seizures would stop for like a week and then they would come back. And it was almost even more heartbreaking for the family at that point. And finally, they just reached this point where Jim was told, look, we're sort of out of options here. 
There is one more thing we could try, a pretty dramatic brain surgery. It's devastating because, as I say, what they do is they sever all connections between the lobes of the brain. So, so there's no way the brain can function normally. So what would that do to Charlie? Yeah, I mean, that is exactly what Jim wanted to know. He's thinking, I have two options here. Figure out what life looks like for a kid who's going to have 12 to 100 seizures a day, or figure out what life looks like for a kid who's had this devastating surgery. So, so do those people, are they still able to live with their families? Do they need round-the-clock medical care? Will they ever learn to walk, talk, love, anything? You know, you just you just don't know, and you try as hard as you can to prepare for the future. Jim has no idea what to do at this point, and he sort of just finds himself heading to UCLA's medical library just to see, is there something out there that can help him understand what might life look like for his family and for Charlie? Jim walks into the library, goes to the epilepsy section, and pulls down what he says is one of the few books that didn't just look like a medical text. So the cover, it's some shadow images of some kids walking. He flips through to the index, looking for Charlie's condition, Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. And three entries above that, Jim sees this thing. And then above that, ketogenic diet and Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. Ketogenic diet, he thinks. Page 111, risks and benefits of. That was it. That was the first time you saw that word. That's the first time I ever saw that word. The first time I'd ever heard of ketogenic diet. Mary, to understand the ketogenic diet, it helps to go back to the 1900s to that medicine-hating bodybuilder that we talked about earlier. Bernard. Bernard McFadden. So his alternative treatment to virtually every disease, you'll remember, was just to stop eating. Yeah, fasting to cure everything. Okay, so imagine it's 1910, 1920. Bernard McFadden is going around, he's taking sick people's food away. And somewhere along this journey, a real doctor, an endocrinologist from New York City, notices, wait a second, this might actually be helping. And in fact, it turned out that some Parisian doctors had been trying this out too, fasting to help stop seizures. And so in 1921, this New York doctor presents the idea of fasting for epilepsy to the American Medical Association, a Bernard McFadden idea presented to the modern medical establishment that he hated so much. And so, in essence, they were taking one of McFadden's ideas, whether he liked it or not, and seeing if it could hold up to the test of modern medicine. Yep. There are very early studies that talk about children that were fasted. One particular study that looked at a child that was fasted for 60 days. 60 days. Yeah. Uh, by the way, that's a, a neurologist from Johns Hopkins, Mackenzie Cervenka. But Mary, you have hit on one of the fundamental problems with fasting for epilepsy. Studies were showing that, yeah, the fasting was, for some people, controlling seizures. But obviously, you can't fast indefinitely. And that is how researchers came up with the concept of the ketogenic diet. Okay, so how does this work? Yeah, sure. So the thinking was, okay, you can't fast forever. 
but fasting is helping with seizures for some people. So could we maybe find a way to get the body to react like it's fasting? And they realized that instead of having the patient fast and use their body fat stores, they could instead ingest more fat. Okay, this is where it gets a little complicated. But but basically, researchers noticed that, hey, when people fast, their bodies are making these things called ketones. Okay, what's a ketone? Yeah, uh, there's, there's a technical answer to this. Ketone bodies are beta-hydroxybutyrate, acetoacetate, acetone, and those are the breakdown products of fat. For, for our purposes, a ketone, it's the sign that your body is not burning carbohydrates to survive anymore. It has switched over to burning fat. And so researchers said, well, maybe we can't fast people forever, but what if we jacked up the fat intake and forced the body to use that for fuel instead of carbs? That way, you're inducing this ketogenic state, but you're not starving people. So you're almost tricking your body into thinking it's fasting. Exactly. So how does that work for epilepsy? Well, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's the <laughs> ultimate question. Uh, this is Eric Kossoff, who's a pediatric neurologist at Johns Hopkins and has done some of the modern research into the ketogenic diet. We, we know it does. We know it works. There are lots of different theories about how it works. Um, All right, so if you think about a seizure as like a momentary power surge in your brain where a whole bunch of your synapses fire at once, bam, kind of shorts things out. So switching from carbohydrates as fuel to fat as fuel, it just seems to make it harder to trip that switch, almost like adding a surge protector to a computer. And ketones showing up, uh, on one hand, that means, you know, good job, we're burning fat, but they may also have some chemical benefit, but... We really just don't know. Just that studies have shown that it helps. Eric Kossoff says about half of the people he sees. So parents will say they've had a 50% reduction in seizures or a 90% or even seizure-free response. Did he say seizure-free? Yeah, for some people. Um, and so that screenwriter, Jim Abrams, this is the diet he's looking at in that book. Remember, his one-year-old son, Charlie, is really sick. Jim's at this medical library researching what he thinks are the only two options for Charlie at this point, life with 100 seizures versus this devastating brain surgery. And he opens this book and he sees a third option, ketogenic diet. So part of me was like disbelieving. Right, like this must be some, some mumbo jumbo. Right, and exactly. Jim had been to about five doctors at this point, and he says no one had mentioned any ketogenic diet treatment. But that book he found at the medical library, that was written by some doctors at Johns Hopkins. There was a study he found, also by some doctors at Johns Hopkins. It turns out it was really one of the only places in the country Jim could even go to see if this treatment would work for Charlie. So he sets up an appointment. You go in, you take him in, and, and he's, he's still a little guy. Yeah, he's, he's still a, just a, a, a baby. And The doctors meet with Charlie, and they decide, let's give this a try. After a couple days, they start Charlie on the diet. And Jim still has some of the meal plans from back then. And he knows that on paper, it sounds unconventional. Well, here's this one. 22 grams bumblebee solid white tuna, one lettuce leaf. Okay. 24 grams macaroni or spaghetti. Okay. And 53 grams fat. Wait, what, f- fat? Yeah. So fat could be like, in the form of heavy whipping cream, um, butter. Wait, just like eating it? <laughs> yeah. Or, you're, I know, it's gross. Hold on. So your baby's eating one lettuce leaf and 53 grams of butter. That's like half a stick of butter. No, I know. I know. But you, 
you have to see this from Jim's perspective, right? This is not a diet at this point. It's a treatment for his toddler son. The alternatives are 100 seizures a day and a devastating brain surgery. All right. Okay. So given that, why does he need to eat like chunks of butter or drink whipping cream? So remember, your body wants to burn carbs, right? So if you want it to burn fat, you can't give your body an option to burn carbohydrates. So in what's called the, the classic ketogenic diet, 80%, 8-0% of your calories come from fat. The rest come from protein and carbohydrates. So that means even if you wanted to eat like bacon all day long, you couldn't because the ratio is out of whack. Yep. And so there are times where it's, it's just hard to get the fat you need. So high fat cheese, heavy whipping cream and butter, that's what it takes. Just out of curiosity, what does the, the face of a toddler look like when you try to feed him butter? Well, y if you're lucky enough to see the face, it's kind of sour because you're, you're likely to get punched in your own face when he sees it coming. <laughs> They're on these meal plans. Charlie's still having seizures. A couple days go by. And by the third or fourth day, the, the, the seizures stopped stopped. Yes. And then... Just, wait, you went from 12 to 100 seizures a day to zero? Yes, within a few days. At what point did you realize he was seizure-free? Well, you know, we talked about the honeymoon period. It takes a while to really trust what's happening. Maybe this is going to last a few days and then the seizures will come back. But they never did. And then you start to see, especially when the seizures stop and when they withdraw the drugs, you get to see, uh, you know, like, jeez, uh, I'm sorry. <clears throat> you get to see, like, a, a light in his eye again. So that's it for Charlie? Well, I mean, sort of. So Charlie was responding really well to this, like seizure-free well. And that's not necessarily a temporary thing. There, there has been some success actually weaning kids off the diet after about two years, and then the seizures don't come back, like, ever again. So this was the hope for Charlie. Uh, after about two years on the diet, they tried. They tried to take him off, and the seizures came back. Um, so they tried again after a couple years. Seizures came back. And after about another year, they tried one last time when Charlie was about six. And this time, the seizures did not come back. Okay, it's rolling. This is Charlie Abrams. He's 24 years old now, a teaching assistant. He has no memories whatsoever of having seizures. He barely remembers the diet, just that he had to take a lot of vitamins. Yeah, the vitamins having to be crushed because I couldn't swallow whole pills, and they tasted awful. But uh, I think it's a good thing that I don't remember. That's totally incredible. It's unbelievable, and only slightly more unbelievable than this. <laughs> What's going on? It's mom. She said she found something, a um, different kind of treatment that could help Robbie. Diet. Is that a movie? Oh, yeah. This is a TV movie from 1997, based on the Charlie story, directed by his dad, Jim Abrams, starring Meryl Streep. What? Hi, this is Lori Rymuller. And I've just read uh, Dr. Livingston's book about the diet that uh, uh, treats childhood epilepsy, and I would like to make an appointment for my son. Jim Abrams said that 
at first, when he realized this diet was going to work for Charlie, he was overwhelmingly grateful. And then as it sinks in, there's anger. Anger. Anger, yeah, because he had to stumble onto the ketogenic diet on his own. And so Jim has made it his mission to help make sure hospitals and doctors and patients all know about this treatment. And he made that Meryl Streep movie for one, but he also started the Charlie Foundation. Uh, And according to the foundation, there are now more than 200 hospitals around the world that have ketogenic diet programs. And Mary, I should... um, I should also say, Jim would be really angry if I, if I didn't add that the recipes for ketogenic diet have gotten much better since Charlie was a baby. Okay, but here's my question. Why did it take the screenwriter from Airplane to get doctors to pay attention to this diet? Yeah, no, that is the question, right? So uh, I asked Eric Kossoff, the neurologist from Johns Hopkins, that very question. Well, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's clear what happened, you know, in the 1940s, 1950s, which was the development of new anticonvulsants came around. Um, no study really showed the diet not being effective anymore. But I think it got overshadowed by lots of new drugs. Uh, if you look at some of the ads of the time, they would say, you know, we now have something, you know, more modern we can do for epilepsy and take a pill. And, um, you know, lots of promises made about cures of epilepsy. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the case for about 30 percent of the population. And here for me is where the story of airplane screenwriter Jim Abrams and the story of fasting cure Bernard McFadden go from being related to really becoming the same story just from totally opposite perspectives. Okay, tell me about that. All right, so 1900, you have Bernard McFadden. He has his own cure for everything and then refuses to acknowledge any benefit from modern medicine. And so, and he fades into obscurity because, like, come on, we're killing bacteria and we're crushing measles and mumps and it looked like modern medicine might come up with a fix for everything, even a pill to cure epilepsy. Right. But now, 100 years later, a guy like Jim Abrams, the pills for epilepsy don't work for his son, And so he goes back and looks and finds this treatment that works, but sort of got left behind in the dust of hope and progress. And so here we are now digging back through that dust to see if maybe we left other stuff back there. And can we hold it up to our new standards and see if see if it works? The New York Public Library has an encyclopedia written by Bernard McFadden. That guy did everything, didn't he? Everything. Careful with the books because they're old. Okay. And if you flip open to the, the page for epilepsy... No treatment known will do as much for epilepsy as will natural methods. I mean, there's an entry that, you know, it's, it's not the ketogenic diet, but it has shades in there. And if you just turn to that page, Bernard McFadden looks like a prophet. <laughs> the challenge is this encyclopedia, 3,000 pages long. 3,000. And some of those pages look a lot less prophetic. Influenza. Impedance. Typhoid fever. Elephantitis. Plague. Comma bubonic. Complete fast number Milk three should number be two. Fast number three. Fast number two. Fast number three should be instituted immediately. Yeah. I mean, the, the question is, you know, is it, is it a matter of a stopped clock being right twice a day? And again, author Mark Adams. Maybe just by the, the law of large numbers, 300 pages of that have to be, you know, brilliant prophetic health advice and 2,700 pages have to be completely nuts. I don't know. I don't know. But my guess is he was a combination of ahead of his time and completely nuts. Yeah. Uh, I will say my elbow has been sore for like four months. Yeah. I've been thinking like, I don't know if there's anything in that encyclopedia (laughs) for that. But I'm, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there is. Muscular soreness, tendinitis. Swelling pain and tenderness of the affected joint. <laughs> the Bernard Encyclopedia had this? Oh, yeah. 
resty affected part. Rest. I tried that. Yeah. Hot compresses should be applied. I tried heat. Uh-huh. Enemas should be employed if necessary. Ugh. <laughs> yeah, no way I'm doing an enema for my elbow. <laughs> that makes sense. All right, Kenny, thank you so much for this story. Yeah, absolutely. This episode was edited by Patricia Willens. Our Bernard McFadden voice actor was WNYC's Richard Hake. Only Human is a production of WNYC Studios. Our team includes Amanda Aronchik, Elaine Chen, Paige Cowett, Julia Longoria, Fred Mogul, and Kita Rao, Ariana Tobin, and Jillian Weinberger. Our technical director is Michael Raphael. Our executive producer is Leetal Malad. Thanks to Megan Cunane and Eleni Murphy. Jim Schachter is the vice president for news at WNYC. And I'm Mary Harris. Talk to you next week. Support for WNYC's health coverage and Only Human is provided by the Torina Endowment Fund, the Hearst Foundations, Jane and Gerald Catcher, the Iris and Junming Lee Foundation, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, the Simons Foundation, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, and the Winston Foundation.